I don't know what it was. Maybe it's after I raked a lot of uh, pine straw. We had a lot of pine trees in my house in, in Weaver, Weaver, Alabama. And uh, so on several occasions in my teenage years, I would take an axe and without any permission, I would go chop down one of the pine trees in our backyard. <laughs> Unannounced, I would just do it. Now, I was in a single parent home. My, my dad had left home um, when I was fairly young. So when, as a young teenager and a teenager, my dad wasn't at home. So I didn't have to deal with his fury and anger. I just had to deal with my mom's. But anyway, and I had done it several times and had gotten in trouble. And uh, so, but I didn't heed my mother's um, warning. So it was a Saturday and uh, mom was sleeping late. So uh, I got out there and got with it. And uh, so I was, I was chopping down a big old pine tree. And it wasn't real thick, but it was very tall. And uh, I don't know anything about cutting down trees. I'm, I'm honest with you. So, uh, and I miscalculated. So, <clears throat> so when the tree came down, 2 Corinthians 4, then one of the branches happened to hit my mom's bedroom window and shattered it. And that garnered a response from my mama. So my mom comes, she doesn't say anything through the window. She comes outside, and my mom said to me, What were you thinking? What were you thinking? Now she said some other things, but that was the question. What were you thinking? Now, the stuff I'm going to share with you today about light and darkness. We're going to talk a little bit about darkness. And uh, what are you thinking about good and evil? What are you thinking about light and darkness? What do you think? You know, this is a serious and a very uh, deep theological issue when it comes to Christ being the light and us walking in the light. And as a matter of fact, Jesus even says we're the light of the world. But yet we, we're the light of the world in a world full of darkness. These are big issues. What do you think about that? What are you thinking? You know, I think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 when he says that we're to hold every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. So everything we should be thinking is how Jesus lived and how Jesus responded. Uh, and how Jesus, you know, how He treated Scripture. How He obeyed the Father. All those things should be what we think about when we're confronted with issues that we face today. We've been in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for several weeks. And I just want to look at one particular verse. I'm going to read several, but focus in on one. I'm beginning at verse 1. Paul says, and of course... if We'd studied part of chapter 3 last week, so you know the context. He talks about the veil of the heart, how Moses put the veil on, and because he got to where he'd put it on because he knew he would, he would have the... His face would shine from being in the presence of God, but it would fade. And so eventually he was not just wearing the veil because 
It would shock them when they saw the glory on his face or the glow of his face. He wore the veil because the glory faded. And of course, we're just the opposite. We should be growing and maturing in glory or in light. So he says, therefore, having this ministry, chapter 4, verse 1, 2 Corinthians. By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. A lot of people do that today. It's not thus saith God, it's it's man's opinion. We're rewriting God's Word now. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those that are perishing. Now listen to what he says. Now, I mean, obviously the context when he says those that are perishing, immediately you, he is talking about those that are unsaved. He's talking about people that have not responded in salvation to the gospel. So that's why he calls them perishing. But I want you to listen to what he says is one of the causes of their lostness. Now it's not the, it's not the only cause, nor is it the primary cause of their lostness. But he does say in their case, in their case, now here's the issue today. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. What Robbie read in Ezekiel 28, and I'll read later in the service in Isaiah chapter 14, is a passage about the fall of Satan. Uh, In Ezekiel 28 and in Isaiah 14, both of those passages are extended commentaries on when God threw Satan or Lucifer, the shining one, when He threw Lucifer out of heaven because He tried to usurp the authority of God. So when we come to the Bible and we say the God God of this world, who is the God of this world? Who is He? Satan. Now folks, we'll say that, and it is right, it is Satan. But my struggle for myself and for my congregation is that um, we don't live as if the devil's the God of this world. He's called both the God of this age, eons and eons, and the God of this world. He controls it now. And He controls the future until Jesus dethrones His role on this earth. And Jesus said in John's Gospel, in John 8, I'm going to give you all kind of cross-references, but in John 8, Jesus said to, basically it was some, the Jews that were paying attention to Him but had not repented and believed in Him. He said, you'll be free. You know, you come to Me, You'll know the truth. This is in John 8. And the truth will set you free. And they get into all this argument that they've never been slaves to anybody, but they're slaves to Rome when they say that. 
But he's talking about being a slave to the devil, slave to sin. And he says, you're a slave to who you obey. And then he gets to John 8, 44, and he says, you're of your father, the devil. He's causing, he says, your pater, your father is the devil. And he says he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So by the way, we should not be surprised that the world that we live in, who is controlled by Satan, who is the God of this age, who is the prince of the power of the air, we know that. We should not be surprised that this world is full of deception and full of murder. Because Satan was a murderer and a liar from the very beginning. Folks, the stuff I'm going to share with you this morning, I, I, I don't mean this to be... Uh, I'm not arrogant, but I, I wished that I would have known 20 years ago the stuff I'm going to tell you about having a biblical worldview about this spiritual battle that we're in. There's a reason why when, when we say living in the light of eternity, living in the light of eternity, it's easy to say that. I even... I've got tons of verses we can quote. But it's not easy to fulfill. It's not. And it's because we're in the midst of this absolutely massive battle. Satan hates Christ. He tried to overthrow Him sometime you know, after God created. And he's been trying to usurp His kingdom ever since. And the New Testament specifically says He is the God of this age. And so I want you to know, there's no gray area. Everybody who's not saved, and it's hard to say this, everybody that's not saved has a Father. And who is it? You can answer that. Who is it? Satan. So the God of this age is their Father, is their God. And that, in Lucifer, Satan, the deceiver, whatever you want to call them, the diabolical one, we'll look at all those, the devil, he is diametrically opposed to your Christian life. He hates your guts. And if he's lost your eternal soul, the other thing he would rather do now is to silence your witness. That's his goal. But for some reason as Christians, we just don't take living the Christian life very seriously. So what I want to do this morning, I'm going to share with you, I guess what I would call is a biblical worldview about good and evil. Some of this you've heard before. So you're going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask, if, if you take notes, this is going to be worth taking notes on. Now I'm going to cover a lot of material. But I want you to take your Bibles and flip back to John chapter 1, real quick, the Gospel of John real quick. And then we're going, to, we're going to look at several cross-references and I'm going to give you some, just two or three things to think about as we close in about an hour. But uh, So go to John's Gospel. You'll remember we read some of this a couple of weeks ago. One of our theme verses, you know, if you look at our little theme at the top, one of our theme verses is John 1, 4. So I want to read you a couple of verses out of John chapter 1 and uh, talk about this struggle that we have. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, verse 1. And the Word was God. 
Christ is the Word become flesh. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. So those of us that know the life, that have, have been born again, that's the life, that have been, uh, the doctrine we use, this a word called regeneration. It's the word for born again. We're regenerated. We're giving life. Uh, one of the words that uh, Peter uses is, is again Genesis. Beginning again. So for all of us that have come to Christ in repentance and faith, we've been given life We've been, we were dead in our sins, but God gave us life. And in that life, we have light. He is the light of men. Let me read a couple. Look, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So for 2,000 years, we've been in the church age. And those of us who know Christ, for 2,000 years, all who have been saved by the power of Christ and have this light, we haven't been defeated. We won't be defeated. The darkness battles us, but it will not overcome us. And then John says, there was a man, by the way, you know this isn't John the Apostle, because John never mentions his name personally. John here has to be John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He, was, he came as a witness. Folks, this is who we are. This would be all of our responsibility when he says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. You know, one of the greatest enemies of, of our Christian witness is us. Is our hypocrisy. The witness that we have, many of us have, is, is, is not good. It says he came to bear wit he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He says he was not the light. Again, John the Baptist wasn't the light. He just came to bear witness about the light. Folks, that your that is your responsibility too. John the Baptist was really the, honestly, was the last Old Testament prophet. You know, he kind of introduced the forerunner of what the new covenant was going to be. And so what John the Baptist was, we are to be. Look at verse 14. He reminds us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We have seen the light, right? For those of us that are saved, you think about, I'm not going to go into how, you know, the, Light is some kind of energy and power. I read some definitions. I can't, I can't describe it to you. But, but when it hits the retina, you see. I mean, and so you're thinking about the spiritual light. Christ is the light spiritually. And just as light travels at 186,000 miles a second, the power of Christ is instantaneous and He can expose us to Himself and change our lives instantaneously. So... We have seen His glory. I love that. We have seen His... So the light in God's eternal plan decided to shine on you. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Look at verse 17. It says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only, the only God. And look what he says. Verse 18. His little theology here. It tells you who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? He's God. Look what it how, And this is why translations matter. We use the ESV, uh, New American Standard. Now, there's a lot of translations that are accurate here, but translations do matter. Because literally it reads, No one has ever seen God, the only God, that's Christ, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So, when John the Apostle is writing God's Word, he mentions the Word becomes flesh, but also he mentions that the Word is God. And it's God that's revealed Himself to us personally in, as the Son, as Jesus Christ, the Jewish man, the God-man. Look at all at Luke verse 34. Still in John 1, He says, And I have, and I have seen, and I have seen, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus says something about that. Go to chapter 3. Let me just show you one little verse here. What Jesus says about this issue that we're battling. Look at John 3.16. Look what He says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then he says, and this is the judgment. The light. There's always this article in the light. It's, there's no other light like this light, Christ. The light has come into the world. This uh, one phrase about physical light is a wave of energy. Now think about this spiritual light. The power of Christ has come into the world. It says, He's come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about a biblical worldview. If you read, if you read Old Testament history, whether you're in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, back in, I think it was 1947, when we go to Israel, we'll get, we visit the Qumran where, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you may not even know what I'm talking about, but this large find of, of biblical text they found in 1947 in a cave uh, not far from the Dead Sea. That's why they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anyway, that's pretty smart, isn't it? So anyway, so in, in those scrolls, a lot of the extra biblical history is in those is in those scrolls, and when you read a lot of that historical information, when the Jewish people looked at the world, they they had they understood the world to be so wicked because of three reasons. Okay, now these are all biblical. So I want you to listen, and this is what I believe, and this is what I've always believed. So why is the world the way it is? Why why is it? Why is it that men are so wicked and God has not judged man uh, 
He hasn't wiped off the face of the earth and straightened. Why, why is it the way it is? Well, the Jews understood that we're where we are because of three reasons. And if you understand this, it makes sense. Now, I do talk about some of this a lot. But listen, number one, they said, why is the world the way it is? They said there's three, there's three issues. Number one is Genesis 3. See, this is why we believe the book of Genesis to be literal. Okay? The first 11 chapters of Genesis are the foundation of the New Testament. The reason you need a Savior is in Genesis 1 through 11. Okay? The, the blood sacrifice, while there has to be an, a blood sacrifice to atone for sin, that's found in Genesis 1 through 11. So the first issue, according to, and theologically for the Jews, the world's the way it is, number one, because of the fall. You can read that in Genesis 3. We won't read it now. You know, I mean, there's so much to teach there. You know that Eve was tempted. She ate the forbidden fruit that God said, don't eat it. And she gave to her husband. And he was culpable of the whole thing, we find out. But he, was, he knew what was going on and didn't stop her. She didn't ask him to intercede for her. And so she sinned and he sinned. And the Bible says God cursed the world and He cursed man. And so now we have what we call the Adamic nature. And if you keep reading in Genesis, you find that Adam and Eve had Seth, and it says and he was in Adam's image. He was a sinner. So everybody that's a descendant of Adam, and we all are, we are sinners. So that helps me make that makes sense. We're sinners. So that was the first incursion of sin. So we're all sinners, and that's why Paul argues. Now think think logically. This is why the Bible argues that you're condemned in Adam. You're born one time physically, but you're born as a descendant of Adam, and you're condemned. You're born in sin, right? You're a sinner. You know you are. Little children are sinners. They're not accountable, but they're sinners. Vicious. Vicious. And if they were big, if they had muscles and big and strength, they'd kill you. They're big because they're sinners. You know that. Because we're descendants of Adam. That's number one. Number two. This is why we believe the Bible to be literal. Second incursion was Genesis 6. Now, I'm not going to get off on that because we've studied that before. That is some weird stuff. This is where the fallen angels... And see, you know they're fallen because twice in the New Testament it says the angels that sinned. So in Genesis 6... Some angels, by the way, they, there's tons of this information in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's several extra biblical books that talk a lot about Now, Genesis 6 explains it. The sons of God came into the daughters of men in Nephilim. There were giants in the land in those days. It's Nephilim, these half God and half man, half fallen angel and half man. Massive, vicious, wicked. So here's the second incursion. First was Adam, second was Genesis 6 when the angels, and there's four or five extra biblical books that tell us there's 200 that started it, 
Doesn't matter how many there were, but it says it happened in Genesis 6. They corrupted the world. Read the rest of Genesis 6. Guess what else happens in Genesis 6 after the Nephilim do their deed? Guess what that's the beginning story of? Noah. And do you know what God does because of that? Guess what happens? You tell me what happens. Because He says every, everybody on the face of the earth was wicked all the time. Some more wicked than others. That's another reason why He flooded the world. Water was on the face of the earth for several months. Fifteen cubits above the highest peak on the earth because the giants had to, had to drown too. And God wiped off the face of the earth. Let me tell you something else that will kind of peel the paint off the wall. Now this is me. I can't prove this. This is an opinion. But when, when, Noah got re- when God got ready to flood the world, remember a male and female of every kind came to the... He didn't have to go get them. Do you know that those extra biblical books, and they're not inspired... That may not be true. But many of those extra-biblical history books say that those fallen angels not only corrupted, had intercourse with women, created Nephilim, giants, monsters, but they also fooled with the genetics of animals. They toyed with animals. And this is, by the way, the Bible does mention centaurs and minotaurs. Half donkey, half man. You know, a donkey head and a man's body. It mentions those things. Well, maybe it is true that, that those fallen angels toyed. So who knew what would be a purebred animal that had not be tainted if that was true? God would. So God brought the animals to the ark. Seven of the, the clean that they were going to sacrifice, you know, but, but two of each kind for them to produce, and they got on the ark. And then everybody died except eight people. On the ark. Because of sin. That's the second incursion. Now think with me. So you have the fall. You have the incursion of extreme wickedness. This is where after this, when God starts giving commands to the Jews later on, He has to say things like, again, I'm sorry, this got to explain this some of your kids. God has to explain, because they showed up after the flood. They were on the earth in those days. You can read it in Genesis 6, 4. They were on the earth in those days and also after that. So after the flood, they came back. That's a whole other story. But God has to tell grown men and grown women who are His children, don't have sex with animals. Now why, why would He have to come up? Because the incursion, the wickedness of fallen man, of Nephilim coming back on the earth, was again corrupting. So the first incursion, Adam, in Adam. Second was Genesis 6. The third, and this is where we are today, was the Tower of Babel. And folks, less than, I know it's less than 200 years after the flood. It's possible that it's right over 100 years. Now listen to what I'm telling you. This is how wicked the heart of man is. I'm, I'm no different. My heart's just as wicked. Thank God that He's in me by the power of the Spirit. But I do things and think things that are what pagan. I'm pagan sometimes, aren't you? You can shake your head. I know you are because you're like me. 
Well, in Genesis 11, uh, let's just say, just to round it off. Now think with me, a hundred years after the flood, okay? That's possible it could have been 200, doesn't matter. Because everything was written down. A hundred years after the flood, God commands Noah. It's the second. He says the same thing He said to Adam and Eve. Fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But you read over there in Genesis 10 and 11, they didn't do it. They all hung around Mesopotamia, which is the birth of what we understand. You know, society started there. So... So they all hang around there, and then all of a sudden this guy named Nimrod shows up, and it says he began to be a gibberim, which was a mighty man, a, a, a vicious warrior. Genetically, he, something happened to him, and so he leads this massive rebellion. A hundred, let's just round it off. A hundred years after the flood, they rebel, won't separate, won't obey God's commands. So what does God do? What does He do? changes their languages. He confuses their languages and then they have, they have to separate based on the language they speak. So everybody that's speaking this kind of gibberish, they head over here to this part of the world. Those that speak this kind of gibberish understand each other and so they go, and so all the nations, you can read about this in Genesis 11. It, de- it describes all these people groups that went all over the world. But let me show you what the Bible says. Now, let me tell you, I'm going to go a little bit long this morning. I know that's unusual for me, but this is extremely important. And I'm not going to keep you forever, but I, I at least want you to leave with this thought, understanding why this war is so tough. Let's just go there. Go to, go to Deuteronomy. Okay, go to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now take me a minute. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. I'm sitting here hoping I I marked this in. Yeah, I did. I marked it. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Just let me just read. uh, Just look at verse 8. 32a, you might want to mark this if you mark in your Bible. That's not unspiritual to do that. That's not desecrating God's Word. Desecrating God's Word is putting your Bible on your table at the house and touching it once a year. That's desecrating God's Word. Verse 8 says, When the Most High, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. So when did God give all the nations an inheritance of space and land? The book of Acts 17 tells us this. He distributed all, okay. When he divided mankind, right? God did that. Tower of Babel. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now in the Old Testament, the sons of God were, was a term for who? Angels. Okay? And you have to realize that there are good angels, and, but we know there's bad angels. But this is what the Bible says God did. You can read this back in Genesis 11 and 12. God, He disowns the nations. They reject Him. He lets them go. go. They go their own way and He gives charge to those nations 
angels have charge over them. Now, there are good angels. We're going to read about that in a minute. But there's also bad angels, right? So, all these, since the Tower of Babel, that's where these, the world that we live in was established. The world that we live in, the nations, the ethnicities, not races. Not races. There's, there's not multiple races. The Bible says there's one race. There are multiple ethnicities. But God distributed the people groups. He disowned them. It says that. He divorced all these nations. And He gave charge to those nations to the angels. And then He calls one man by the name of Abraham. And He says, I'm going to marry you. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And you're going to be my people. See, that's the world we live in. And that lasted till 2,000 years ago when Israel failed and Jesus became the true vine. So now, but those nations are still in darkness. You with me? Nothing's changed. But how? So now, rather than the kingdom of God being one little nation in the Middle East, the kingdom of God is those that have Christ in their heart and we go tell people about Christ and they can be born into the kingdom anywhere at any time. But without that, they're living in darkness. So where the world is, is because of the fall, because of Genesis 6, and because of the Tower of Babel. That's why this world's the way it is. And the only hope for anybody is hearing the gospel and being saved. You're a descendant of the first Adam. You bear the image of the first Adam. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Those of us that know Christ bear the image of the last Adam because we've been born again. And that's the only hope. Everybody else is lost. No hope. And, and you say, well, you know, my daughter's, not Bonnie, but Leah, was asking me about these third world countries. We are getting a discussion the other day. The reason the world is where it is is because the world reject, their descendants rejected God's truth. So these world, these nations where there's... and I. I I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm so grateful that God saved me and I lived in America and heard the gospel, all that God's plan. There are people groups that are just isolated, but they're where they are worshiping totem poles or worshiping cows or the sun. They do that because their descendants rejected God's Word. So they're where they are because they rejected truth. Read Romans 1 and 2. They're without excuse. Because in the past they rejected truth. But they can be saved, just like you were saved, by hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to understand why we're where we are because of the three issues. This is, this is historical theology about why the world is the mess that it is. And no wonder there's murder. No wonder there's deception. No wonder there's ignoramuses leading our country. It's because their father is the devil. And he's a liar and he's a murderer. And he wants you as a believer to collapse and cash in. The world, the devil, and the flesh want you to live like you used to live before you knew Christ. So it will silence, it will silence your witness. Go take your Bibles and go to Acts. 
Let me show you what Paul says. This is Acts 26. Now this is kind of unrelated to the heavy stuff I just said. But go to Acts chapter 26. And I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul. This is when he's witnessing to King Agrippa. Okay? And, and so what Paul does, Acts 26, uh, his, this is his uh, first Rome, this is where he's going to end up being in, imprisoned in Rome the first time around, so he's being prosecuted, he's standing before all these kings and governors. But if you go to chapter 26, verse 1 just says, So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak. So Paul's defending himself. The Jews have accused him of being a, uh, promoting a false god to their... So they're just trying to have him arrested and executed. So, so anyway, I was just going to the verse... Uh, so what Paul does, and he does this two or three times, matter of fact, four times in the book of Acts, when you read about Paul, you, it ends up talking about his testimony. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, records Paul's testimony, I take that back, three times. He records Paul's... And here's one of them. I'm at verse 12. I just want you to see what Paul says in his testimony. He said... In this, verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. Now, he went from Jerusalem to Damascus. Do you know how far that is? Look on the map. It, it's 130 miles. This, Paul, and you know, you've read, you know what the book of Acts says when Stephen was stoned, that all the guys that were stoning him laid their cloaks, you know, they took their jackets off so they could throw rocks harder. They laid them at the feet of who? Saul. Saul was right in the middle of, of persecuting Christians. So, he, so, so in this, he's talking about that now. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus to persecute more people, he says, with the authority and commission of the chief priest. So the, religious, the, the Jewish religious leaders were giving certificates of authority to Paul to go find Christians and persecute them or kill them. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light. Isn't this great? Since we're talking about living in the light of eternity. Look what Paul says. At midday, O king. At midday. Do you, do you see what he said? At midday. This is the Middle East. Paul says at midday. You wait till you go over there. Some of you are going with me. At midday, it's hot, even in November. It, the sun, something else happened that's greater than the sun. Look what he says. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. Now, folks, this is God's sovereign plan. Just like physical light is power and it hits the retina and you don't have anything to do with it. The light you see, you see. Well, God saves Paul. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, God speaks Hebrew. Do you see that? What? It's because He made the Jewish people. No wonder He speaks to them in Hebrew. He's the Hebrew. He called Abraham. Who's the Hebrew? Right? It's incredible. And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Paul was persecuting the church. 
But the church is the body of, don't ever forget this. The church, it's precious. Folks, this church isn't mine. It isn't yours. I met with a preacher last week and church issues, you know, and, and we're talking about church having some issues, not our church, but a church that had a pastor. And people act as if it's their church. This isn't your church. It's not my church. Whose is it? It's Christ. Matter of fact, the Bible says he purchased it with his own blood. So when you start wanting to yakety-yak about church, this isn't your church. So we better be submissive to the head. That's why we're talking about the headship of Christ. So he's fallen to the ground. I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And, and the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. Now, folks, my conversion and your conversion may not have been exactly like that. But I can tell you, the light shined on me. And if you're saved, the light shined on you. Amen? That's right. Supernatural, mercy of God. He says, for I, so he says, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared, I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen, to have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. So, you know about me now. Do you see that? You know about me now. You've seen me. But I'm also going to appear to you more. That's what it says. We call this apostolic authority. Paul was an apostle born out of due time. Paul kept writing Scripture because God kept appearing to him and telling him to write Scripture. So we know more than once, more than twice, we know three times, probably more, Jesus appeared to Paul and gave him revelation. And he tells him he's going to do that. You've seen me now, you're going to see me later. And see, that happens to us all the time by means of the Word and the Spirit. Isn't that awesome? Paul didn't have the New Testament. He had the Old Testament. So, but we have the living Word of God and the Holy Spirit. So we're, we have access to this kind of life all the time. He said, I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sent. So he's saying, I'm going to keep you safe. You know, you go. To, now look, I will stop here, but look at verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power... Now this is Jesus telling Paul, basically, here's, your, here's what you're doing. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. So, this is much like what John the Baptist did. To turn people from darkness to light, from the power of God, from the power of Satan to the power of God. This was Paul's commission. Now, I've got one minute. 
me read to you several Bible verses. Uh, by the way, I wrote down some notes. You know, if we think about the light, I've got to stay with the rebellion, but, but let me just say this real quick. When we think about Christ being the light and us following Christ, just use, there's several more metaphors we could use. He's the good shepherd, we're sheep. There's, he's the vine, we're the branch. I mean, there's tons more metaphors. But if I'm thinking about the light, like the light shone on Paul, and he's going to follow the light, that's what's happened to us in salvation. Uh, Psalm 119 tells us that. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So whether it's short or it's long, he, he's going to lead our way, the light. So the light sets our directions. I just, I wrote, I, I, these aren't profound, but just stuff I wrote down. Living in the light, living in the light of eternity, number one, it sets our directions. Christ sets our directions. Number two, it dispels the darkness. Okay? Uh, so if we're not walking in the light, you know, Paul, uh, John says this, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, John 1 7. 1 John 1 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So, so we're confessing and we're fellowshipping if we're walking in the light. So number one, it sets our directions. Number two, it dispels darkness. Number three, walking in the light ex- exposes obstacles. I know that's obvious, but those of us that are getting old, we have to get up a lot of times at night, and it's not to run or exercise, it's for another reason. You get up several times a night, and the first thing you do is find a light, because you'll fall. You need a light. Well, some of you, because I don't have that problem. So, but, you, but light exposes the obstacles. So, the light sets our direction, dispels the darkness, exposes obstacles. It prevents us from stumbling. And the other one I wrote down is it, it keeps, think about this, you'll need the light because the Bible says the way we're walking is the narrow way. There's a broad way. You don't need a light to walk on the broad way. You can walk on the broad way in the darkness because that's what it is. But if you're going to walk on the narrow way, you're going to need the light. So walking in Christ or living in the light of eternity, you you stay on the narrow way. Um, there's so many scriptures I want to read to you. Uh, this is how easy the battle is that we struggle with, okay? Um, I'm going to read Matthew. I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase it. There's no way we have time to do this, but let me give you a couple examples. Peter. Uh, In Matthew 16, we let, I, I promise you, I'll close with this one, okay? Well, let's not make that a promise. But let, let's go to Matthew 16. Take your Bibles, and, and I promise you, we'll be coming to a close on this one. So I better not, but I just want you to see this. I want to see how hard it is, how easy it is to be caught up in our sin and our flesh and not knowing the truth and how we can be deceived. We'll come back to this next Sunday because I want to talk a little bit more about the darkness. Well, next Sunday is the Lord's Supper, but it'll be the Sunday after that. I'm in Matthew 16. Now, now look what happens. Matthew 16, and look at verse... Uh, let's pick up at verse 13. It says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, we visit there when you go to Israel, and... Uh, it's interesting where Caesarea, it's this Philip, uh, Caesarea, there's one city called Caesarea. It's a port city. Caesarea Philippi is up in the northern part of Israel. But anyway, 
So, so when Jesus came into the re- district of Caesarea Philippi, this is really about as far north in Israel as you can go, He asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And, and they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And of course, who's going to speak for them? It's Peter. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, uh, son of Jonah, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, folks, Jesus just tells Peter, Peter, that's the most profound statement theologically of anybody in the New Testament era. You have made a confession that's been as a divine revelation to you, and you've made a confession that most people have no idea that this is the truth. So, so Peter makes this profound theological... And he has this insight that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he says. You're the, look what Jesus says. Because I'm the Son of God, he, he, this is where our, our Catholic friends get this wrong. Peter's not the Pope. But I tell you, you're a Peter, and on this rock, the rock of what he just said... By the way, Peter, Petros, is the word for little stone. And guess what's all over the place in Caesarea Philippi? There's a little creek that runs through Caesarea Philippi. Little creek. And guess what's all in the bottom? Stones. Little stones. But up on, right above that little creek, there's this massive mountain, big, a big rock that's been chiseled into. So he's saying, Peter, you're just a little stone, but I'm the rock. Let's see the difference. On this rock, me being the Son of God, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. To make the story short, verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and be raised. So He tells them, Hey, I am the Son of God. I'm going to build my church, but I'm going to die for, I'm going to die for the church. Look what he's, so Peter, look at verse 22. He, Peter goes from making a confession of the greatness of God in Christ to doing what? To rebuking Jesus. Look, look, look. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Him. So he sticks his finger, so to speak, in Jesus' face and he says, Far be it from you, Lord. This won't happen to you. What's he telling Jesus? You're not going to die. Look what Jesus tells him. So he turned and he said to Peter, what's he say to him? Get behind me, Peter? No. Get behind me who? So listen to me. Thinking about this battle that we're in, we'll, we'll revisit it in a couple of weeks. Here's Peter, who at the time in history makes the most profound theological statement and revelation that Jesus says has been spoken by a man. In the same conversation... Peter rebukes the Son of God and tells him he won't die. And that's the very reason Christ came. So what he tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Do you know who Peter was speaking for? You tell me, who was he speaking for? Satan. Now folks, that tells me, it doesn't mean that Peter was lost. It doesn't say that. It just means that Peter lost his way. Guess what you and I do all the time? All the time. We lose our way. And you may tell you why we lose our way. Because we're not following the light. We're not doing it. 
We don't know. We don't follow what he says. We don't listen to what he says. And we just lose our way. And sometimes we act like morons when we do it. So folks, this world that we're in is wicked and evil. And living for Christ is, is not for sissies. And it's not an easy task. This is why the whole New Testament is full of metaphors about running the race and fighting the battle. It's not easy. But it is worth fighting. Amen? So we want to walk in the light and follow the Lord Jesus. Amen? God's good. Let's stand together for prayer. Thank you so much for your presence this morning. Next Sunday's the Lord's Supper. Uh, we've got some neat things we're going to be doing, some special music, and you'll enjoy that. And then we'll pick this back up on a couple of Sundays from now. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for for Your grace and for Your mercy. and There's a lot, lot to comprehend this morning, Lord. And uh, Father, I pray that, that understanding the context of why living in a fallen world is the way it is for believers. And Father, having that understanding will make us more committed to the Lordship of Christ who the Bible says has called us out of darkness and brought us into His marvelous light. Father, help us to be faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ who brought us back from the dead and has filled us with His presence and has called us to serve Him. Father, we love You and thank You for the privilege to be called little Christ, to be called Christians. Now as we leave this place, may we be a witness for you, a light of the world and the salt of the earth in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.